The trees are in bloom around the capital region this week, and more of the pandemic restrictions we've been living under for the last 14 months are starting to ease. Smells like spring. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. It's always nice when a business uh, newly headquartered in your region has global in its name. You know the biblical tale of the brothers Cain and Abel? What if Cain were put on trial in a modern-day courtroom for the murder of his brother? We'll talk to a local author and Jewish leader who explored that scenario. And I was going to do a form of what we call midrash, right? Um, Sort of the Jewish word, the Hebrew word for active creative interpretation. Blogger Christy Gustafson-Barletti shares her experience struggling with coronavirus vaccine hesitancy. This is real, and now I need to make a decision, and I'm not sure that I want the shot any longer. And what did you think of this year's Academy Award ceremony? We'll do a little Oscars recap with our in-house movie guru, C.J. Lias. I'm not disappointed with Frances McDormand winning. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Okay, let's join Times Union editor Casey Seiler for a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. Last week's episode of The Eagle, we took you through some of the reporting that we had done on a series of events that escalated tension between local civil rights protesters and Albany police. Now, there have been further developments this week, uh, and can you give us some of the latest on that? This was, of course, the decision to clear the activist encampment from in front of South Station in Albany's South End last week. This week, criticism of the police department continued. Activists say that they feel like they had been deceived by city leaders, including Mayor Sheehan. They claim that the mayor told them that they could could stick around and really never engaged with them before the decision to clear out the encampment was made. There has been great criticism, including from the mayor, including from police chief Eric Hawkins, of the apparent decision by some of the officers who were involved in clearing out the camp, clad in you know pretty heavy riot gear, to obscure their badge numbers and other identifying details. Now, uh, Chief Hawkins went before Albany's Common Council and said that that was clearly a violation of departmental policy, but he insisted it was not, quote, a nefarious action but rather a way for these officers uh, to protect against threats to their family by activists. Now, as the chief himself um, would probably acknowledge, uh, police officers are supposed to be identifiable unless they are um, working undercover. They're identifiable in arrest records, court documents, what have you. And I think there is going to be more criticism here. The chief said that there is an internal investigation into exactly how this practice came to pass before the the encampment was cleared out. Mayor Sheehan, as well, as it turned out, roughly the same time that 
the chief of police was appearing in front of the Common Council, the mayor was pitching Albany's police reform plans, uh, virtually that is, at a, a discussion uh, sponsored by the, um, the Kennedy School of Government. She faced considerable pushback, including a moderator who noted that, you know, the, the spirit and intent of the police reform seemed to be belied by what happened right outside uh, South Station. And, you know, the, the mayor acknowledged these are challenging, difficult decisions. She said, I understand that there are people upset at how it was happening. For full our full coverage of this, uh, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to the previous episode of The Eagle, as well as visit timesunion.com. Moving on to business news, computer chip manufacturer Global Foundries announced this week that it is officially moving its headquarters to Malta. We are uh, enhancing our presence in upstate New York, and we're officially, as of today, relocating our headquarters to Saratoga Springs, uh, I'm assuming Saratoga County, Malta, New York, right here. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, it's always nice when a business um, newly headquartered in your region has global in its name. The CEO of uh, Global Foundries, Tom Caulfield, um, was joined by Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer this Monday to announce that it's moving its uh, headquarters to Malta, which is, of course, home of its Fab 8 computer chip factory from Santa Clara, California. Now, this does not necessarily mean that they're um, shuttering operations in Santa Clara, that hundreds of people will be packing up the U-Haul and driving cross country. A lot of those jobs have already shifted to Malta, but still it's it's a, a feather in the cap of, you know, what we what we like to coin as Tech Valley. Now, with the census data that has just been collected and processed, it looks like New York is going to lose a congressional seat. Can you tell us why exactly? Well, because there's a set and unchanging number of members of the House of Representatives. And every 10 years, we count the number of people in the various states and reapportion how many of those uh, members of Congress they should get. Now, since 1950, when New York was the King Hell population center of the United States. And we had, I believe the, the topmost number was 45 members of Congress. We have, as demographic um, shifts, manufacturing work has shifted um, south and elsewhere. Um, we have been losing members of Congress. Usually it is at least two members. It's been every decade, you know, two, 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 in 19, after the 1980 census, we lost a whopping five when we lost a little bit more than three and a half percent of the state population over the course of the 70s for various reasons we could spend an hour discussing. Uh, in 1990, I believe it was three. So actually, this is the only year or the only decade that we have only lost one member of Congress since just after World War II. Now, that's the glass half full way of looking at this. The glass half empty way of looking at it is that according to the U.S. Census, we only fell about 90 residents short in the count of holding on to that member of Congress. And it has, Ouch. of course, yeah, it, it hurts because that's not a rounding error. That is like a rounding error on a rounding error in a state with you know, almost 20 million people in it. There has been abundant criticism level, leveled at Governor Cuomo uh, and his administration by 
complete count advocates who say that the governor and the administration really kind of slow rolled funding for um, efforts to get the, you know, the, the topmost uh, count that New York could have gotten all through 2019. They were clamoring for this funding to come forward well into 2020. It finally came, but it was, you know, if not a dollar short, definitely a day late. 90 people, I mean, goodness gracious, and complete count advocates around the nation have noted that it appears that Latino residents in various states have been badly undercounted. The governor says that the state's going to look at its legal options, but if past precedent, you know, bears out, New York will likely not get satisfaction and get that that one member member of Congress back. Well, we will certainly follow that as that develops. As of this week, the legislature is looking to overturn Governor Cuomo's edict that you must order food when you're ordering drinks at bars. It was a pandemic era restriction. Uh, So what's the latest there? Well, the era of so-called Cuomo chips appears to be coming to an end. This was one of the executive orders that the legislature has now rolled back. The governor, rather than <laughs> rather than acknowledge that the legislature is now sort of taking more of a whip hand, if you will, on a lot of these, the rollback of a lot of these executive actions has now sort of leapt to the front of the parade and said, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're, we're doing away with that. And and a number of other restrictions as the state moves to open up. Hey, hey, what's this I see? I thought this was a party! Let's dance! One of them that is also going to be lifted is the so-called Footloose Law that banned uh, dancing at, um, at taverns, you know, bars and restaurants. And also, New York City uh, has announced this week, Mayor de Blasio said that he hopes that the city can be almost completely open by the beginning of July. Of course, a lot of that depends upon vaccination rates continuing to ramp up. And in this, we can, um, uh, or those in the capital region, specifically in Albany County, can take a measure of pride. Uh, County Executive Dan McCoy said that the county is the first to get to 50%, which is impressive. And I did my part, Jess, and I know you did too. I think this week we both got our uh, our second shots. So congratulations. I'm actually headed out to get mine now. Good. All right. Thanks, Casey, for joining us. We'll check back in with you next week. Thanks, Jess. As always, you can read more about all of the stories and issues we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. A recent study out of Tel Aviv University in Israel says the pandemic amped up incidences of anti-Semitism around the world. According to that research, much of that surge was online during lockdowns. Rabbi Dan Ornstein leads Congregation Ohav Shalom in Albany. He's also the author of the new book, Cain v. Abel, a Jewish courtroom drama. I recently had a chance to speak with him about his book, and also asked for his thoughts on how a global rise in anti-Semitism has affected the local Jewish community. So let's talk about your book first. Can you tell us how you got the idea for this? So there were a couple of different sort of uh, ways in which I came to decide to write this book over the past several years. 
Um, some might say, or I, you know, I could say that uh, one of my motivations is that having grown up with two siblings and uh, that being sort of the foundational sibling story of Western religious tradition, that I've always been fascinated uh, about what it means to grow up in a family with siblings. And what does that mean uh, in ever widening concentric circles? What does it mean to be a brother or a sister? to the people in your community, to the people in your country, to the people in sort of just in, in your, in the place where you are. So part of it was just sort of always being, you know, sort of contemplating and thinking about what does it really mean to be a brother or a sister to someone? And what does it mean to be your brother's keeper in every widening contexts of human familial relationship? But I do have to tell you, perhaps the more immediate motivation for my writing the book was Bruce Springsteen. Springsteen in his iconic song, which is an autobiographical song, Adam Raised a Cane, uses all of this imagery to talk about his own relationship with his own father. And, and as he says in his uh, memoir, Born to Run, that biblical story is really a great foundation story about the hard legacies handed down from father to son, from generation to generation. My father So the Cain and Abel story has always fascinated me for all of those reasons. And I really feel that as one of those foundational wisdom texts, you know, of world culture, of Jewish religious culture, uh, of religious culture in general, it just has so much to say to us, not because it gives us answers, but because it forces us to ask lots and lots of questions. That's a powerful message. Um, now let's give a let's get a brief synopsis about your your kind of take on the Cain and Abel story and, and where you took it in your book. I decided that because the, the story is purposely very skeletal, right? And it really does force you to ask lots of questions because there are gaps in the text and lacunae in the text that I was going to do a form of what we call midrash, right? Um, sort of the Jewish word, the Hebrew word for active creative interpretation. Um, that this is a text that says, you know, respond to me, right? Talk about me, try to interpret me because there's so much here that, you know, good readers, any reader, you know, could be looking at and asking questions about. And so decided that I was going to ask certain basic questions. First of all, why is it that Cain and Abel seem to sort of exist in this very brief story, um, in this field, on this plane, and the only one intervening between them or with them is God? Adam and Eve, the parents, are nowhere to be found in the story. Why is that? Why does the story leave out their parents, who were there very briefly at the beginning and way at the end after you know, Abel has already been murdered and, you know, and Cain has been exiled? So using that question, I then decided that um, uh, I, I wanted to kind of do this midrash, this sort of this interpretive um, kind of work of looking at the story by imagining Cain at the sentencing phase of his trial and trying to understand how we, right, the jury, were not only looking at Cain and judging Cain, but also judging ourselves because Cain is a mirror for us. How would we come to understand all the different mitigating factors and circumstances in his life and balance all of those things against the fact that he still needs to take responsibility for having murdered his own brother? You know, what are those mitigating factors? What are the factors that contributed to all of this rage that the story talks about, that God warns about, that he's not supposed to respond to? Um, what about this character, Sin, who wants to jump on top of Cain, according to God's warning, and basically sort of lead Cain down this path of doing really bad things by responding to his worst impulses? And in looking at the whole story as a courtroom case, 
um, I try to use Cain really as exhibit A in an even bigger question, which is really about um, what does it mean to be human? And given the human propensity to do such bad things along with good things, was it really even as it were worth it for God to have created us in the first place? So it's Cain's trial, right? Really the sentencing phase and trying to understand that um, and trying to understand Cain really as, um, as a paradigmatic model for us and for what it means to be human um, and hopefully responsible for each other, but also to ask these bigger spiritual questions and these bigger philosophical questions about um, what's the purpose of being human if we are so easily driven to do such horrible things to each other. Well, you can read more about uh, Rabbi Dan Ornstein's book on timesunion.com. Jack Reitmeyer interviewed you previously and went in a little bit more depth. Um, but yeah. I want to uh, change topics just briefly. Um, I want to talk about the pandemic, one of the other uh, effects of the pandemic. And that uh, recent study out of Tel Aviv University said that the pandemic actually amped up instances of anti-Semitism across the world substantially. And now, of course, you know, in the last several years, um, you know, headlines, um, events like tragic circumstances, so many things um, have sort of anecdotally um, said to us that anti-Semitism is on the rise. What are your thoughts right now? Has the pandemic made it worse? It's a hard question to answer. I, again, in terms of my own personal experience and in terms of sort of, you know, our synagogues and our community's local experience, we've seen very, very little of that. We've been very lucky, very, very blessed. But it's clear if you go beyond that TAU study, right, the Tel Aviv study, um, and you look, for instance, uh, I was looking this morning at uh, the Anti-Defamation League's, um, I'd say it's like a, a hate watch um, inventory that it does. The number of incidents, you know, physical incidents, not just online incidents, but incidents cemeteries, you know, sort of on the facades of synagogue buildings and JCCs and the like, um, has increased substantially, uh, much of it using rhetoric um, that is, you know, um, that, that's basically sort of right-wing extremist, you know, um, you know, rhetoric that is, is both, um, you know, uh, anti-Semitic and, and very much you know, opposed to, you know, people of color, to African-Americans and to Latinx people as well, using a lot of the language and the symbolism of Nazism and neo-Nazism. So, you know, while I'm not feeling it or we're not feeling it on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, it is clearly very worrying. We know, uh, you know, from, from the federal level all the way down to the local level that we are dealing with, you know, the genie out of the box, as it were, you know, of, uh, of what had always been supremacist, you know, uh, sentiment and supremacist activity um, that's now been ramped up even more where people feel more legitimized in terms of, you know, um, sort of, you know, uh, dealing with, you know, the grievances, you know, that they have by, you know, by attacking Jews or by attacking, you know, other people of other faiths and minorities as well and different groups. And so it's worrying. Yeah, it's definitely worrying. I mean, we have a huge amount of complication and tolerance education that we have to do in this country. Um, I've been doing a lot of thinking, um, a lot of my fellow um, rabbinic leaders and Jewish leaders in general have been thinking a lot about allyship and about what does it mean both to, to sort of reach out to people who are our allies and people to whom we can be allies. And I think we're gonna be having a lot more conversation about that because it's only in those allied numbers that we'll really find the strength to be able to move society forward so that the people who are the most extremist you know, in their attitudes about us, about Jews and about others, um, we'll slowly, hopefully slowly get the message that no, uh, you know, you can believe whatever you want, but there are things you just cannot do. You may not deface people's buildings. You may not threaten people. You may not hurt people. You may not kill people. And so, yeah, I have, I have real worries there, but I also have real hope 
you know, the, the fundamental character, you know, of, of American society and American culture is really basically a character of, of tolerance and that live. And right now we are really struggling with that. And hopefully we continue to prevail, you know, really in the direction of respect for all people, um, agreeing to disagree with civility and getting to know people for who they are and not for who we think they are. After the break, blogger Christy Gustafson-Barletti shares her experience with vaccine hesitancy. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Ranieri's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. As we noted earlier in this podcast, roughly half of Capital Region residents have gotten at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. According to the state health department, roughly 37 percent have been fully vaccinated. While local rollout seems to have picked up, there's still a ways to go toward what public health experts consider herd immunity, i.e. back to normal life. That's somewhere between 70 and 90 percent. Certain zip codes in Albany County have some of the lowest vaccination rates in the country, according to the latest data. Lack of transportation, time, resources, education, and language barriers have all been major factors, and those have hit communities of color the hardest. But vaccine hesitancy in all communities has also been a limiting factor in getting vaccines in arms. The decision to get a vaccine is a personal one. And for some, like Times Union blogger and features writer Christy Gustafson-Barletti, it's a difficult one. I recently spoke with her about her experience. Let's start at the beginning. Yeah, so I spent the last year, basically, the beginning of the last year, I should say, in a panic. Last April, March, April, I was walking around with, like, heavy-duty masks. I didn't want to leave the house. I was afraid to touch anything. And then I started to calm down a little bit, and my fears would ebb and flow. And all I kept thinking was, when will the vaccine come? I want the vaccine to come. I want everything to feel more normal. And then the vaccine started being available. And I started to say, oh, this is real. And now I need to make a decision. And I'm not sure that I want the shot any longer. What were some of the reasoning for, for why you were hesitant? So I felt like I survived the last year and I didn't get COVID. And then I thought, well, some of the people my age who got it were okay. And then I also worried about the fact that I felt like the vaccine came to market, I'm going to say air quotes, too quickly. But then I researched all those fears and realized that essentially they were all unfounded. It didn't really come to market quickly. This could be a real timeline if we had the the money and were able to skip the red tape normally, which we can't do. But in this case, the smartest people in the world and the most money was invested to find this vaccine. So that is how it got here. It, it wasn't quick. It was normal if you had that in all the other cases. And then I also started hearing stories about 
friends and people I knew very well. So these were not a friend of a friend of a friend. These were people I actually knew who were in their 30s and 40s who were having, maybe they were okay when they got COVID, but the complications afterward from a cardiac standpoint and other standpoint, blood clots, things like that, it wasn't good. And I started to reevaluate and think, okay, maybe I'm not making the best choice. The vaccine wasn't available to people in your cohort for a while, obviously. Um, And you talk about how, you know, you kind of hid behind that fact. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. So I don't have any comorbidities and my BMI did not make me eligible. So I was always able to say, well, I'm not eligible anytime anyone asked me if I was getting vaccinated. And people asked all the time. I would say several times a week, people I knew and even readers would say, why haven't you posted about it? Are you getting vaccinated? And I would say, well, I can't get vaccinated yet. But once Governor Cuomo opened it up to everyone 30 and older, and you didn't need any kind of comorbidity or anything else, like no matter what, 30 and older, you could get it. It was then game time and I had to make a decision. And I had a conversation with someone I know fairly well, who I thought would have passed on the vaccine. And she pointed out to me that she was doing it for everybody who can't do it. You know, there's certain people who are immunocompromised and things like that, and they just can't get vaccinated. And she said that, and I thought, oh, that's right. We do make decisions in life a lot of times that aren't necessarily just for us, but for the greater good and for those around us who maybe can't make certain choices or do certain things. So that certainly played into my decision-making to get the vaccine as well. Now, you ended up getting it. And you had talked to me prior to getting it about, you know, like the day before, I think it was, about how you were really nervous. Tell us about how you were like that morning and in the moment. So that morning, I had one of the first vaccines of the day. I got there a half an hour early because I was just like, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get it done. But even on my way there, I thought, do I really want to do this? Am I sure I want to do this? And then I walked in. I did it over at um, SUNY Albany. And I walked in and I kind of felt overwhelmed by emotion. And I can't even explain what the emotion was. It was it was relief. It was nerves. It was the power of seeing, I kind of want to get choked up even talking about it, just seeing all the, the workers and the volunteers and everybody there coming together to help people. Um, I told the nurse who gave me my shot that I was nervous. I told her I was hesitant. I said, I'm here and I'm still really nervous. And she said, don't worry. I see people like you every day who are nervous and hesitant. And it wasn't about the needle or the shot. I have no fear about any of that. It was just the decision. I was still a little bit nervous. But then I sat in the waiting room afterward. You go to a waiting area afterward for 15 minutes. And I looked around at literally hundreds of people sitting with me. And I thought, wow, we're all in this together. And we've all made this decision for whatever our reason was. But collectively, we all made the same decision. But we each had our own reasons for doing so. That's beautiful. I I felt very similarly. Now, if you, you know, someone came to you and they confided in you that they were, you know, nervous or scared for the same reasons that you were, you know, like, what would you say to them? I think the biggest thing is to not pressure anybody to make a decision one way or another, but to do good research, not just rely solely on what you see on Facebook that's coming from whatever random source, but talk to people you trust and people who are experts in the field, you know, physicians and read stories from reputable sources and listen to people and then think uh, think about the different factors and the way the life has played out, but also your future and who you're affecting. And I think then you have to make the decision that's not just best for you, but best for everyone around you as well. And I think be honest with yourself about that decision. And I know some people who didn't want to get it because they felt that the people around them were saying, oh, you can't do that. That's silly, whatever. 
and they almost felt embarrassed to make the choice to get it. But I think it's just so important to be confident in your decision and know that it's safe and it's not scary and it doesn't hurt. I should say that too. Some people were worried it hurts. It didn't hurt and I felt nothing the next day. I felt perfectly well. Needles, you know, take away all of the COVID and all of the stigma around, you know, what's going on with this particular vaccine. And you you still have a needle. So if you fear the needle, that's that's kind of a big thing. But so you wrote about this. You wrote about your very intimate, you know, decision making. Um, how do you feel after having written about it? I have been writing for the Times Union for more than 20 years and interacting with readers heavily for more than 20 years. I have never gotten such a heavy and great response than I did to this column. Certainly, I heard from people who disagreed with me, who said I didn't make the right choice, and they told me about all the other options and the medicines and the things that they would use if they got COVID. But I also heard from dozens, I should say, dozens of people at least, hundreds if you count the comments, of people who said, thank you for sharing this, thank you for your honesty. I felt the same way, but I was hesitant to share that I was vaccine hesitant because it sounded like a way you shouldn't be. Some people even said, look, this helped me make the decision and realize that I do want to get my shot and I am going to sign up for my shot. And it feels like it's the best decision for me. And my goal here was not to encourage people to go get vaccinated. My goal was to encourage people to make an educated decision, think about why they're doing what they're doing, and then make the choice based on based on that rather than peer pressure or just because they read random false information online that's not researched at all. The 93rd Annual Academy Awards Ceremony took place last Sunday in Los Angeles. A-list movie stars gathered in person on the red carpet, six feet apart, of course. The usual spectrum of bold sartorial choices and familiar fanfare gave the illusion that things were almost back to normal in Hollywood. And the show itself brought the usual mix of surprises, snubs, and awkward moments. I talked to Times Union Features writer and movie buff C.J. Lias for his reaction to Hollywood's biggest night. We talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago when the Oscar nominations first dropped. We talked about your predictions. And I think overall, you did a pretty good job of predicting some of the winners. Would you agree? Yeah, I think I ended up with 17 out of 23 or something like that. Hey, that's pretty impressive. I mean... That's the majority of them that you got right, right there. Like you got uh, Yu Jin Yun, she won for Best Supporting Actress. Mm -hmm. You got the Best Makeup and Hairstyling, you called that. Um, you called Daniel Kaluuya as well. I'm not disappointed with Frances McDormand winning. Um, I was gonna say, you are her biggest fan, so I, I can't imagine that you would be disappointed. Yeah, and I thought she was fantastic in it. And that was the one race that was kind of up in the air because throughout the whole awards season, it was going back and forth who won among all five of them. A refresher, uh, well, you had initially uh, thought in our previous conversation that maybe Carrie Mulligan might get Carrie it. Carrie Mulligan, yeah. But if not her, I thought it was going to go to Viola Davis. I was very surprised that it went to Frances McDormand, especially because she just won a few years ago. Now she so, won two Oscars last night, She won right? two, so she now has four Oscars. And that ties her with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, right behind Katherine Hepburn, who has four. She and Daniel Day-Lewis have three lead actors apiece because Meryl Streep has three and 21 nominations, I think. But one of those is in supporting actress. And all the other people who have three are a mix of supporting and lead. Or I think Walter Brennan has three supporting actor Oscars. So 
Now, on the other end of the spectrum, we have poor Glenn Close, who set her own record last night. Now it's now tied with Peter O'Toole has eight nominations, no wins. But I think we can all agree Glenn Close was a big winner for her performance of um, The Butt. I was going to say, yeah, just Google Glenn Close debut and you will Or be... don't. Or don't. Yeah, maybe that's not a good idea. Um, but yes, it was very a very meme-worthy uh, moment last night, and, I'm told. And that was after she lost. So that just shows what a, what a team player and what a good sport she is. Absolutely. Now, uh, you mentioned the last time we talked about a couple of firsts, and a, a bunch of those were followed through with actual awards. So mm-hmm. let's talk about Chloe Zhao. You know, it didn't turn out the way I thought it was. A lot of people thought, but she still ended up with multiple Oscars. And she did become only the second woman to win a directing Oscar and the first woman of Asian descent. Frances McDormand also is, I think, the first female actress who won lead actress and producing in the same year for the same movie and possibly the first of all time. I'm not sure. Well, that's nice to see. And Chloe Zhao's wins are nice to see, too. Uh, but they were kind of balanced out somewhat by the night's largest disappointment and arguably one of the biggest disappointments in, in my Oscar history, you know, or my grasp of Oscar history. Chadwick Boseman did not win Best Actor posthumously. Instead, it went to Sir Anthony Hopkins, who I, of course, admire and esteem as an actor. But that's not where I thought that was going to go last night. So what were your thoughts? Anthony Hopkins was probably my second choice uh, to win. I mean, it's, it's, it's a shattering performance, but, and it's, I'm not saying anyone could have done it. They couldn't have or done it as well as him, but I mean, it was built into the part also as a, as a man struggling with dementia and, and what, you know, what that means for his future and, and his family and everything else. It kind of, kind of was there on the page for you to, to score with it. If you had the talent. I but, would call um, it Oscar bait maybe. Right. What I think happened with Anthony Hopkins is he is one of the biggest beneficiaries of this extended and late uh, Oscar season that went from all of 2020 through the first two months of 2021 because of the pandemic. They extended to 14, the 14 month period. The Father, the movie he won for, came out past the normal deadline. Had it only made its debut last year among, you know, the people in the industry or, you know, those, those few weeks it, it's in limited release. I'm not sure enough pe- voters would have seen it to vote him through, but they had all this extra time. And had that not been the case, I think it definitely would have been and should have been Chadwick Boseman. Sure. Yeah. That was a, that was a large disappointment for me. I was, I was a hundred percent certain that Chadwick Boseman was going to get it. Now, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and again, I didn't watch it, but I followed it on Twitter was that all of a sudden best picture was announced midway through the show. Now that, that just blows my mind because as, as somebody who's watched the Oscars for many, many years and you as well, like that comes at the end. That's the big reveal at the end. That's I, what everybody's I waiting guess, for. I think in all 93 years or 92 years prior to this, it's been the last award, I'm pretty sure. Why, why? What's your thought? You know, I mean, everyone assumed and is, you know, social media went crazy about this saying it was banking on Chadwick Boseman winning and they wanted to end on that note, which I still don't quite understand, even if they were certain, which clearly they didn't know. Right. The two previous posthumous winners, I mean, Heath Ledger was for supporting actor 
so that would have been earlier in the night. But Peter Finch, when he won for Network, he was best or lead actor. No one thought, let's finish up with that for the, the emotional send-off. I don't know if that was his call, Steven Soderbergh's, or whose it was to make that happen, that the, the best actor. And then for Anthony Hopkins to not even not not even to be there or even like on streaming, zooming, anything. It was just kind of a thud to end the whole thing. Poor Questlove, the DJ for the night. It, it had to it pivoted to him and he kind of had to close it all out after that. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom.